already mentioned that we're continuing this two-part series on the Office of Deacons in the local church. And, and last Sunday, by way of introduction, <clears throat> I made the point that, that a biblical church is a rightly ordered church. In other words, God cares, God cares about the way we're structured because he bought us at the cost of his own blood. That's huge. You're, you're precious in the sight of God. And the fact that biblically faithful churches are ordered or structured in different ways doesn't mean that God is somehow not concerned about our structure or that because faithful churches do this in different ways that it really doesn't matter what we do. Okay? Both of those things are not true. Why? Because of what Paul says in 1 Timothy 3, verse 14. I'm writing these things to you, this book, so that, here's the goal, you may know, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God. God cares about that, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, when I say that a biblically a biblical church is a rightly ordered church. I'm not saying that we're focusing on the office of deacons right now because somehow we haven't been a biblically ordered church. Okay? By the grace of God, I mean this, by the grace of God, I think many aspects of our church structure, particularly being led by a, a plurality of elders, have been a significant blessing to our church over, check this out, 28 years of history next month. Isn't that amazing? 28 years. But as we prepare to celebrate the, the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation this year, we do well to remember one of their mottos, which was Semper Reformanda, or always reforming. Always reforming, okay? I think in recent years, God's pushed us to get to be always reforming by getting the whole congregation more involved in our life as a church and the decisions we make as a church. And I think that this year, he's calling us to define and strengthen the role of deacons in our midst. Okay, but that's the heading this falls under, always reforming. And there's several reasons that's the case. Okay? First, the breadth of the material and physical needs both among our members and in our community just continues to grow. Okay, those needs continue to grow. Second, the number of members in our church who are looking for help to start ministries that are seeking to meet those material or physical needs continues to grow. Third, when it comes to the ministry of mercy in the church, I think it's all too easy for the needs of a multitude to rest on the shoulders of a few. Okay, I won't mention any names, but it's so easy for heroic servants in the church who are always going around meeting material and physical needs to get burned out. And I don't want to see that happen here. And fourth, the sort of physical and material needs I'm describing have been addressed throughout much of church history under the leadership of church officers called deacons. Okay, so those four reasons why I wanted to take these two weeks to talk about this. Now, on the whole, on the whole, I think we've lacked clarity and vision over the years when it comes to understanding exactly who a deacon is and exactly what sorts of responsibilities are, are entrusted to their leadership. Now, I should say that after my sermon last Sunday, several um, older members here kindly reminded me that years ago, all of our small group or community group leaders were called deacons. Okay? Heard an amen for that. Yeah. Now, now, whether or not that's a wise practice for the future is something I'm excited to talk about at some members' meetings this year. Okay? But for now, I'll simply observe that, that based on some recent conversation I've had with some of our small group or community group leaders, I think giving them that title, at least the way it was done, was helpful for some, but also very confusing for others. 
Okay, so we're gonna come back to that later this year in members meetings, all right? By the end of this year, I'm hopeful that we'll have a position paper on deacons akin to what the Lord helped us build back in 2013 with lay elders. Okay, that was a significant step for us. And, and we've got a lot of details to hammer out in members meetings between now and then. But, but here's why I wanted to start this process, year-long process, by taking two Sundays to hopefully define and strengthen our understanding of the role and responsibilities of deacons. Okay, why, why do I want to start that whole process here? Well, it's simple. I want to, I want to survey the primary text in the Bible on deacons in this context, Sunday morning, because I think this office of deacon affects all of us. Maybe you haven't thought about that, okay? If you're a member of this church, then you need to understand the roles and responsibilities of deacons. If you're considering joining a church, then you need to understand what do they believe about the roles and responsibilities of deacons. And if you're not a Christian, don't presume everyone here is, okay? And you're wondering, is this a church that maybe like perhaps other churches or religious groups you've seen is all word, talk about this, talk about that, and no deed, they never live it, then you should be very interested to hear how do they talk about the members that are responsible for guiding and leading all of us in the ministry of mercy, okay? So last Sunday, we looked at Acts 6, where Luke describes the installation of seven men who became prototypes of the office of the deacon. And in each one of these men, we saw this, had to be full of the spirit and wisdom because they were responsible for managing, check this out, the material and physical resources of a congregation of some 10 to 15,000 people. That's crazy. And they had to do it in a way that preserved the unity of the church and protected the credibility of the church. That's not easy to do. And I'm I'm glad we started in Acts 6 because I think that chapter helps us understand why their role is so important. Why, Why are deacons so important? I'd say it this way. Absent, wise, spirit empowered care and leadership. Without those things, physical and material needs undermine our experience of the joy of redemption and they sow seeds of division and discontentment into our community. That's a big deal. We don't want to let that happen, okay? So this morning, I want to turn our attention away from the the need for deacons that we saw in Acts 6 and focus more on the qualifications and responsibilities for the office, okay? So look with me, if you have a Bible, 1 Timothy 3. I'm going to begin reading in verse 8. Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience And let them be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Okay, so two headings. We're going to spend most of our time on the first one. Qualifications for deacons. Second heading, roles and responsibilities. Okay, so first is going to be a lot longer. When the first one takes a long time and I get to the second, don't freak out. It'll be shorter. Okay, so let's start with qualifications. All right, in this chapter, chapter three, Paul's discussing two offices in the church. Okay, elders and deacons. And, and he's writing to an apostolic delegate of his named Timothy. So apostolic delegate, what do, you, what do you mean by that? Well, that, that simply means that Paul told Timothy to take care of the church in Ephesus in his absence. So it was Timothy's job to identify and train and encourage and deploy local leaders in the church who could help that church in Ephesus remain faithful to the gospel for years to come. 
Okay, that's his mandate. So in verses 8 through 13, Paul lays out 10 requirements for a group of church officers that he refers to as deacons, as deacons. So look with me at verse 8. There, there are a couple things, two things in particular, that I want you to notice about the first word in verse 8, deacons, okay? First, it's plural, all right? Leadership through plurality is one of the foundation stones of biblical church government. It's huge. It helps us not assign undue significance to a single leader, and it ensures that the strengths and weaknesses of one leader can be compensated by the strengths and weaknesses of another. All right? So it's plural. Second, this word deacon, it's a descriptive title. Literally translated, it simply means servant. What's a deacon? A servant. And it's used all throughout the New Testament to describe people who who build up the local church in various ways. But in this context, Paul's using it in more of a technical sense to refer to an official church office. Okay, so we have a servant office. Now, we're still in verse 8. This word likewise, deacons likewise, that indicates that the moral qualifications he's, he's about to lay out for deacons are similar, but not necessarily identical, to the moral qualifications he just laid out for elders. Okay, so he's connecting us back. And, and there are differences in gifting and calling that, that we'll talk about a little later between an elder and a deacon, but the moral qualifications, they're interchangeable. Okay, there are also, I should add, character qualities that God expects every Christian to possess. Okay, so for those of you who are thinking, checkbox, never going to become a deacon, checkbox number two, not going to pay attention to this sermon. (laughs) Don't do that, okay? These are qualifications that God expects every mature man and woman in the church to possess. A healthy church should be full of people who look like this. But what makes elders and deacons unique is that they have to exhibit a spiritual maturity, in these areas, that doesn't mean they are somehow Christians who have arrived. Okay? Why do I say that? Well, because of James 3.2. What's James 3.2 say? We all stumble in many ways, except elders and deacons. No! Craziness, right? We all stumble in many ways. Don't put elders and deacons on a super spiritual pedestal. But at the same time, they must be examples of godliness that the rest of us can wholeheartedly follow. Does that make sense? All right, so let's let's look at these qualifications for deacons. Okay, first, Paul says in verse 8, deacons must be dignified or worthy of respect. You know, I can't think of the last time somebody encouraged me by saying, Matthew, you're so dignified. You know, that's, that's not a, I've never gotten a text from a friend like, hey dude, praying for you this morning, just appreciate your dignity. You know, I, I've never gotten that. We, we don't use that word a lot, but that simply means someone who's worthy of respect. Worthy of respect. There's a seriousness and weight to their personal character that causes them to be honored and respected by the people around them. In other words, it's not the name or title on their name tag that gives them spiritual authority. It's the force of their character. And I think far too often churches look at at the outward appearance when it comes to selecting leaders. You know, they they look at administrative skills or or business acumen or or who's influential in this congregation or, or who has a magnetic personality and just looks so natural with a microphone, you know. That's not where God starts. He starts with a heart. Why is that? Because the conduct of the character of the officers of the church ultimately determines, in a a significant way, whether the reputation of the church and the gospel message that God has entrusted to us are upheld or destroyed through their leadership. Okay, the, the conduct of their character matters. They have to be dignified. Second, they must not be double tongued or insincere. Okay, that simply means their speech must be truthful and reliable. But Benjamin Merkel says deacons cannot be, quote, slippery with their words. 
I like that. They, they can't use their tongue to manipulate situations for their own personal good. They, they can't be known for saying one thing and doing another. Okay, that's double-tongued. Right, third, they cannot be addicted to much wine. Okay, now I'd focus your attention on two things here. One, the fact that Paul says much wine indicates that it's okay to drink wine. But there's a principle here that goes deeper than the responsible consumption of alcohol. Okay, a deacon has to be characterized by self-control. They can't be devoted or, or enslaved to sinful addictions. Okay, that's the third. Fourth, they must not be greedy for dishonest gain or money. You know, Jesus knew what he was talking about in, in Matthew 6, 21, when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, that, that doesn't mean a deacon has to be financially poor. Right? Poverty in the kingdom of God is not an inherent badge of honor. Godliness is. Okay? But at the same time, a deacon cannot have an idol of money such that he would be tempted to use the church's resources or another member's resources in a dishonest way. So if you want to be a deacon, Jesus has to be your treasure, not money. Okay, that's the point. Fifth, look at verse 9 here. Fifth, what's a deacon have to be? They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Okay, now this is really two qualifications in one. Okay, on the one hand, a deacon must believe what God's word says is true. They have to. Okay, and, and when Paul talks about the mystery of the faith, he's not talking about the things of God that, that we can't understand or really hard to understand. He's talking about the things that God has revealed that would have remained a mystery if God had not revealed them. What, what's chief in that list? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Right? How, how can sinful men and women be reconciled to a holy God? That, that's the mystery of the faith that God has revealed. Okay? Deacons have to have a confident knowledge of the gospel and sound doctrine and, and the implications of the gospel. So, so a basic understanding and a confidence in what the Bible has to say about every area of life is essential for a deacon. But on the other hand, this is kind of the part two of this one in verse nine, they need to not only know what is true, but to be living a life in keeping with what is true such that their conscience is clear. Now, why is this so important? Well, think about it. You know, if you're not a Christian or maybe you're even reluctant to come to church this morning or maybe you spent time with other non-Christians this week, what's one of the most common objections to the Christian faith? Why? Well, I put on the top of the list that I hear, they're all a bunch of hypocrites, right? They, they, they say they believe one thing, but then their life, looks, their life looks totally different, tells a different tale. And sadly, church, all too often, when that, when that accusation sticks, our collective witness to the truth of the gospel is seriously undermined. Okay, so, so a deacon has to know what is true and live in keeping with what is true. Now, please notice Paul is not requiring perfection here. Why not? Well, because if that's the requirement in verse 9, then only God gets to be a deacon. Right? Because no one in this room, this side of glory, can say, I believe everything that is true and I always and forever live in keeping with what is true. No, you don't. No, you don't. You're a human being and you're a sinner that God is at work in, but, but only God's perfect. So he's not requiring perfection here. He's, he's requiring a kind of faithfulness. That there's an integrity of, of life required of deacons where, where nothing is hidden or, or covered up so that to the degree you're aware of sin, you're fighting it. Or that to the degree you commit sin, you're confessing it. There's nothing scandalous going on that would create a public charge of hypocrisy. Okay, that, that's the requirement here, all right? Why is this so important? Because inevitably, the members of the church become like those who lead them. It's true. It's true. That's why believing and living the truth are, are so important for her officers. So, so do skills and abilities matter? Yeah, but you know what matters even more? Personal character. 
Personal character is God's paramount concern. In fact, it's, it's just as much a big deal for elders as it is for deacons. So Paul says in verse 10, reaching back and including elders in this, let them also, deacons and elders, be tested first, then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So what's his point? Well, you don't, you don't set someone into office in the church and then hope they, they grow to the point where they're qualified, okay? You, what do you do? You wait until they're clearly qualified and then you recognize the gifts and calling of God by setting them into office. That's critical. That's critical. So, so the installation of a deacon must always follow the confirmation of proven character and proven gifting even as, through the laying on of hands, the installation, we're asking God to bestow on that person a greater measure of both character and gifting. Does that make sense? It's so important, okay? Now, look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. I want to get a little juice here. We're going to linger here for a little while. I've moved quickly. but We're going to linger here for a little while because this is probably the most debated verse in this entire passage. All right? What does Paul say? Reading from the ESV here, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. Now, you read that, and maybe probably some of you are thinking, no, why is that so controversial? What's up with that? Well, the reason is that the Greek word that Paul uses at the beginning of that sentence can be translated either women or wives. Okay? Now, those who lean toward the former women see Paul making room here for either female deacons or a two-part structure where you have the office of deacon and a parallel office of deaconess. Okay? Those who lean toward the latter translation, wives, understand Paul to be speaking of deacons' wives or female assistants to the deacons. In any case, that second group concludes there's no biblical office of deaconess and that the office of deacon is reserved for men. Okay, that's why this is controversial. Now, now part of what makes this issue so, so difficult, church, is that there are respected theologians and churches on both sides of the debate, please hear me on this, who have a high view of scripture, hold fast to the gospel, and are committed to embracing a biblical view of gender where men and women are created in the image of God and they are equal in value and worth, but different in role and function. Okay, Churches that hold to all of that take different views on this question. Okay, that's why it's difficult. Another reason why I think this is so difficult is that there are sadly many men in the history of the church who have used their leadership position to demean and push down and abuse and hurt women. Okay? That is an atrocity that we have to repudiate in the strongest terms possible, even as we fight to speak clearly and carefully about a biblical view of gender, okay? We have to be careful, because men have done that. Another reason I think this, this question's challenging is that, um, unfortunately, though I don't always think maliciously, um, some have led women to believe that, that God has reserved the gift of leadership exclusively for men, Okay? Please hear me on this. That is simply not true. It's simply not true, okay? We have to exercise discernment in deciding whether a particular role in the church, not, not just the offices of elder or deacon, would strengthen or strain the exercise of biblical masculinity or femininity. But the gift of leadership, as presented in, in Romans 12, for example, is given freely to men and women alike. That's really important. Bottom line, we've got to approach this decision. Can, can women, should women be deacons or should they not be? With humility and sensitivity and a tenacious resolve to wrestle for clarity on what the word of God tells us to do. 
We've got to do that, okay? We, we ultimately, we want to commit ourselves not, not to what is comfortable or easy, but to what our creator says is best. That is so important, church. Recognizing that, that he has an infinite wisdom that transcends all the boundaries of, of time and culture and tradition. That's so important. I should also add that I don't think some of you might have been wondering about this, that we're rightly handling the word of truth if we refuse to take a position simply because godly people disagree. You know, you hear that. Well, people disagree, so it's not that important. I don't think I'll even bother. Why take a position? Whether or not you have female deacons is not a matter of primary importance in the church. It's a matter of secondary importance. But ultimately, you have to make a decision. When I say primary importance, I mean things like your doctrine of God, who is Jesus, what is the gospel. Okay, those are primary importance. But there are things of secondary importance like, should deacons be women? Okay, is that office open to women? It's a matter of secondary importance. We have to answer the question. We can't avoid the question. But once we take a position, we have to hold it humbly. Okay? We have to hold it humbly and with a spirit that encourages those around us to wrestle freely with the issue. Part of what I'm trying to do here is, is teach us, lead us, and how to think carefully when we get to difficult sections in Scripture. Okay, That's the goal here. So whatever you do, please don't make this issue. Should women be deacons or should they not be? As a test of whether or not a church is rightly ordered. Does that make sense? Don't go home, no matter what I say this morning, and say, the test for whether a church is rightly ordered, do they have female deacons or not? I had somebody ask me that recently, and I didn't even want to answer the question, because I could tell he was using it as a litmus test for, do you believe the Bible or not? Okay, that's, that is profoundly unwise. <laughs> Don't do that. There, there's room within the church at large and quite frankly, even within our own denomination's book of church order for different perspectives on this issue, okay? So all of that's really important. So, so here's what I'm going to do, okay? I'm going to show my cards up front, all right? I, I love these moments. I do, okay? Because God's going to help us. I'm going to show my cards up front, and then I'm going to explain how I got there as I've gone back and forth on this issue over several months, okay? But everything I've said thus far to frame this conversation is really important. So much so that if any of you go out and say, well, did you hear Matthew say, you know, a one-liner? Don't do that to me, okay? Leave it in context. Don't, don't pull out your phone and tweet parts of this message, all right? Don't do it, okay? We have to be careful. Help me out, all right? So here's my cards. As an eldership, we think that there are really good arguments on both sides. That's not the token thing every pastor has to say before he says what he really thinks. I really think there are good arguments on both sides. But, but as an eldership, having gone back and forth on this, we're ultimately persuaded that, that in verse 11, we think Paul is speaking of deacons' wives. Or perhaps female assistants to the deacons. Not female deacons or deaconesses. Okay? Those are my cards. You've got them. Now, those who translate this first word in verse 11 as women, okay, and believe Paul permits women to be deacons, they support their position in three ways. So I'm going to give you these, all right, so you can feel the wrestling here, all right? First, they argue that since Paul explicitly refers to deacons at the beginning of verse 8, and then again at the beginning of verse 12, the context of verse 11 suggests that female deacons are in view. Okay? Second, they interpret the word likewise in verse 11 as an indication that, that a parallel office is in view. So in the same way that Paul used the word likewise in verse 8 to compare deacons to elders, so now Paul is using the same word likewise in verse 11 to compare one kind of officer, a male deacon, with another kind of officer, a female deacon. Okay, and third, they point to Romans 16.5 where Paul refers to a woman named Phoebe with a word that could be translated as either servant or deacon. Okay, so those are the, the big three arguments for those who would translate this as women likewise must be dignified, etc. and see Paul making room here for female deacons. All right, now, 
let me explain why I believe wives is a more appropriate translation of that first word. And, and, and what I mean and don't mean when I say that the diaconal office is reserved for men. Okay, so let's go through this here. First, the word gune, that's the Greek, okay, clearly refers to an elder's wife in verse 2 and a deacon's wife in verse 12. Nobody debates that. Thus, I think when the same word appears at the beginning of verse 11, the context suggests that we should translate it in a similar way. Okay, in this case, as a reference to a deacon's wife. All right, that's the first reason. Second, if Paul is switching from male deacons in verses 8 through 10 to female deacons in verse 11, and then back to male deacons in verse 12, verse 11 becomes an interruption in the overall flow of the passage. Okay, but in contrast, if verse 11 is a reference to the wives of deacons, then it, then it supports the overall flow of the passage, where you have what? You have Paul addressing personal and moral qualifications for the deacon in verses 8 through 10, and family and home qualifications for the deacon in verses 11 and 12. It holds together. Okay, third, Paul explicitly uses the word deacon to describe the group of people he's talking about in verses 8 through 10, and then again the group of people he's speaking of in verses 12 and 13. He doesn't use the word deacon in verse 11. It's noticeably absent. And, and to assume that the word likewise introduces or indicates that, that Paul has this additional office of female deacon in view, I think that ignores other places in 1 Timothy where Paul doesn't use the word likewise that way. Okay, he, he's, When he uses the word likewise, he's not always introducing an additional office. He's simply drawing a comparison or, or making an analogy. So the basic idea in verse 11, as I understand it, is that in the same way that a deacon must meet certain requirements, likewise, his wife must meet certain requirements. Okay. Fourth reason, for both elders and deacons, Paul explicitly requires that they be the husband of one woman, or literally a one-woman man. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that if you want to be an elder or a deacon, you have to be married. It doesn't mean that, all right? It simply adds to the requirements mentioned earlier by insisting that if you're going to be an elder or a deacon, you have to remain faithful to God's plan for your sexuality, okay? One man with one woman in the lifelong covenant of marriage. So I would simply observe here that if Paul was referring to female deacons in verse 11, it's strange that he never insists in a similar way that they be a woman of one man, okay? Fifth, if Paul was establishing an additional office of female deacons in verse 11, it's a little bit surprising to me that he would give only four requirements for them when he provides 15 requirements for elders and 10 requirements for male deacons. Okay, there's a bit of a disconnect there. If they were parallel offices here. So the difference makes sense, though, if the women in verse 11 are deacons' wives. Why do I say that? Well, because he's the one who's primarily being evaluated for the office, not her. Okay, so her character's critical, has to be considered, but he's being tested in a way that she's not, if that makes sense. All right, now here's the final reason, okay? Final reason I believe that, that the office of deacon, the office of deacon is reserved for men, is that as office holders in the church, deacons are given significant authority over both men and women. So to place a woman in that role would go against the spirit of the principle that Paul established a few verses earlier in 1 Timothy 2.12 when he says, I do not permit a woman to teach or, notice this, to exercise authority over a man. Now, again, please do not hear what I'm not saying, okay? Paul is not denying that women have the gift of leadership. Nor is he prohibiting women from exercising the gift of leadership in significant ways in the church. He's not doing that, okay? It's, he's simply commanding that in the body of Christ, 
God wants ministry positions where a member must exercise authority over both men and women to be reserved for men. That's what he's teaching. And I think the fact that Paul almost immediately begins describing elders and deacons after he says that in 1 Timothy 2.12 indicates that he's especially thinking of office holders with church-wide leadership responsibility. Okay? Those are my reasons. Now, here again, there are faithful Christians who see this issue differently. Okay, I can't say that often enough, all right? They, they argue that the office of deacon is not an authoritative office, okay? It's, it's what? A service-oriented office. Therefore, a woman can hold the office and not violate the spirit of 1 Timothy 2.12. I don't find that, on balance, persuasive. And the reason is that, that while I'd agree that the office of deacon is service-oriented, whereas the office of elder is more oversight-oriented, they're still an office holder. They're an office holder, and a deacon as such welds a significant degree of church-wide authority in a way that, that even a ministry team leader, or dare I say, a small group leader, does not. Okay, so I found Alexander Strzok here really helpful. So I want you to look at this with me. He writes, according to the New Testament, deacons hold an official position of authority. Notice that, an official position of authority in close association with the overseers. Deacons do not simply provide private, individual help to others. Why not? Because that's something all Christian men and women are to do. Deacons guide and direct the entire church's overall welfare ministry. They they make decisions that affect the whole church body. They're the church's official managers or representatives of mercy ministry. I love how he says that. I think that's on point. Now, when I argue that the diaconal office, as I understand it, should be reserved for men, I do not mean that women should not be engaged in diaconal type ministries all throughout the church. Okay? And just to support that assertion, check this out. All right? In Romans 16, Paul commends Phoebe as a servant of the church. And in Luke 8, Mary, Joanna, Susanna, and a host of other women are clearly engaged in carrying significant responsibility for the early church's mercy ministry, including, by the way, ministry to the Lord Jesus, a man himself. Okay? So you cannot take this assertion that, as I understand it, the office of deacon should be reserved for men and take from that the idea that women in the church should never be engaged in carrying significant responsibility in all sorts of mercy ministry. Okay, that's just not the case. You don't see that in scripture. All right? What you do see in church history, and this is compelling, this is compelling, is that as women served in all sorts of ways in mercy ministry in the first few centuries of the church, they were very much a countercultural force in a pagan society that devalued women, okay? And they were actively resisted on many sides for putting forward this uniquely Christian assertion that men and women created in the image of God are both equal in worth and value in the sight of God. They were fighting for that in the first few centuries of the church. So lest anyone ever say to you that, well, you know, Christianity from its very beginning, was just entirely set up to reduce and demean and push down the role and gifts of women. That is not the case, okay? Christianity was fighting for the dignity and honor of women in contrast to the pagan culture who hated them. That's church history. Now, now because of the significance of, of their authority and influence, okay, we'll wrap up qualifications here, and because, I would argue, the wife of a deacon is more likely to be connected with her husband's ministry, directly involved, than the wife of an elder. Paul lists four requirements for the wife of a deacon that are practically identical, this is really, this is amazing, to the requirements he already laid out for her husband. Okay, so what does he say the wife of a deacon must be? Dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. 
It's what he's already told deacons to be. Okay? And then in verse 12, Paul lists the 8th, 9th, and 10th requirements for deacons, which I alluded to earlier. What does he require of deacons here? They have to be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man. Okay? That's the 8th. They have to manage or parent their children well. That's the ninth. And then lastly, they have to manage or lead their own households well. What's the point? Why, why is Paul getting into their private business in assessing their qualifications? Why not just say, give me your resume? Give me your public persona? Why does he say that? Well, I think it's because Paul's all too aware that especially for men who are married, you cannot sustain a ministry in the church, please hear this, that you are not already practicing at home. You can't do that. I mean, quite frankly, that's true for any of us. You can never sustain a ministry in the church that you're not already practicing at home. You can fool people for a while, but it won't endure. It won't last. And it won't be a ministry that, that brings glory to God in Jesus Christ. Okay, so those are the qualifications that Paul lays out for deacons. And again, I can only imagine I've raised as many questions as I've answered. And I'm eager to hash this out more in some members' meetings. Okay? So now, I want to conclude by looking briefly at roles and responsibilities. Now, if you look at 1 Timothy 3, I hope you already caught this. It's very interesting. There's, there's no verse, you know, 13b, 13c, where Paul says, now, here are the roles and responsibilities of deacons. He doesn't do that. So what am I going to do here? Well, I'm going to try to work backwards from some of these requirements and help us think about what they suggest about a deacon's roles and responsibilities. Okay, Paul, Paul doesn't explicitly give a set of roles and responsibilities. So therefore, local churches, again, so important, need to have freedom to disagree on this issue, to take different positions on the issue. But I want to work back from some of the requirements, qualifications, to what I think that suggests about roles and responsibilities. Okay, so let me say this. Very important as a preface. Being qualified for a church office does not mean that God is calling you at this point in time to fulfill that church office. Why do I say that? Well, because the qualifications here are God's expectation of every mature man and woman in the entire church, okay? And by the way, every man and woman in the church has been entrusted with a collective gift of mercy, ministry of mercy, okay? So if you wanna know, Lord, are you calling me to be a deacon? You have to answer more questions than just do I pass these qualifications? Okay, there's a host of other questions in terms of, is this the right time? What are the needs in the church, et cetera, et cetera. So we'll get to all that later this year in members' meetings. But what I want us to recognize here, okay, is what do these qualifications say or suggest about roles? So first, it's significant that unlike an elder, a deacon doesn't have to be able to teach. You may have noticed that if you're, if you're comparing these two, okay? Nor are deacons ever required to exercise spiritual oversight or rule in the church in the same way that elders are charged to do so, both in 1 Timothy and all over the New Testament, okay? So, so again, the title itself, the title deacon or servant, that indicates that a deacon's leadership is service-oriented, okay? That's really important. And in fact... Whether or not a man is already demonstrating a pattern of sacrificial service and leadership in the church, that should be one of the first questions we ask in determining, evaluating, is this brother qualified? Again, we're not, we're not saying, you pass some character qualifications, so let's put you in office and see if you want to serve people. No, we should be examining and testing, verse 10, is this, is this brother already demonstrating a pattern of sacrificial service? And then we put him into the office, okay? So it's, it's service-oriented, it's service-oriented. You get that from the word itself in many ways. Which means as a deacon, he will exercise authority primarily in the material or physical realm. Okay, particularly the ministry of mercy. Elders, in contrast, just to make this really clear, exercise their authority primarily in the spiritual realm, focused on the ministry of the word and prayer. So you have deacons leading the charge in the realm of material and physical care, you have elders leading the charge, primarily in the realm of spiritual care. Okay? So a lot of that's embedded even in the, the title itself, deacon. A second thing I think we can say here about their roles is that there's an, uh, what I would call a, an interpersonal or a relational significance 
to these qualifications. You get the distinct sense that Paul is very interested in how do they relate with other people, right? These are not just private qualifications. They have to do with how this person relates and interacts. What does that suggest? That a deacon is somebody who's not just isolated off by themselves, taking care of a couple tasks, but they're, they're leading the church and meeting physical and material needs. And that, that activity, that work, requires them to navigate all sorts of relational and social tensions where significant spiritual wisdom and discernment are critical. Okay? So that there's an interpersonal focus here. And then I think the last thing we can say about roles, again, just in terms of broad guidelines, is that the necessity of not being greedy for dishonest gain I mentioned that? Plus, plus this stewardship of money that they're entrusted with in, in Acts 6, that reinforces the physical or temporal nature of the responsibilities they're entrusted with in the church. Okay, so, so when we think deacons, that, that it leads us to think of things like facilities, benevolence, finances, things in that category, okay? Now again, I think local churches have broad freedom to determine exactly what is a deacon going to do here, right? Paul doesn't lay out, now having qualified them, here are their eight responsibilities. Now there's, there's flexibility, but, but scripture gives us contours within which we can make that decision, okay? But I, I would simply say in conclusion that those broad contours we see in 1 Timothy 3 and the historic practice of the church suggest that the best way to distinguish an elder from a deacon is on the elder side, you have leadership, authority, primarily in the realm of spiritual care. And on the deacon side, you have leadership, authority, primarily in the realm of physical or material care. Okay, that's, that's consistent with the broad tradition of the church. That is, probably for all of 2017, the most content I have ever tried to fit in a single sermon. <laughs> okay? I know, I hope I've answered some questions. I know I've raised other questions. But I want to conclude with this, okay? What should be your big picture takeaway from the last two Sundays? All right, we've dived into a lot of different details and I hope I've I've modeled for you how to handle difficult passages of scripture and what I've shared this morning. But what should your takeaway be, okay? Three things. One, qualified deacons are a gift from God. They're a gift from God. Quite frankly, qualified leaders in the church are a gift from God. So we want to approach this this whole conversation with faith. Lord, we want qualified office holders in the church. They're a gift from God. Okay, second, deacons play a critical role in the life and leadership of the local church. You know, we got that from Acts 6. The, The early church was potentially about to fragment and split, divide over ethnic lines absent the faithful ministry of deacons, okay? That's a big deal. It's a critical ministry. And lastly, what should we take away here from these two weeks? The ministry of a deacon is service-oriented, and it's focused on meeting physical and material needs that otherwise would pull elders away from the ministry of the word and prayer. So qualified deacons, they're a gift from God. The ministry is critical, and it's primarily physically and materially oriented. Okay, three big takeaways. Now, to wrap this up, church, I want to thank you in advance for thinking carefully about this with me. Okay, again, the goal is not to say that somehow we haven't been rightly ordered. I'm simply trying to provoke us, stir us up to consider how can we keep reforming? How can we keep growing so that our church structures and our offices here are faithful to what the Lord has laid out for us? I'm eager to do that. I'm grateful for your help in doing that. And I want to pray and ask for God's blessing on that process before I I lead us in a time of ministry, okay? So let's pray and ask for God's help. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much that when you give us your word, you also give us your spirit. And Lord, because we have your Holy Spirit, I thank you that we don't have to be afraid of wrestling with 
passages of scripture that faithful Christians disagree on. Brothers and sisters that we're gonna be worshiping within heaven and, and wrestle with, Lord, what, what does your word lead us to believe? Father, I pray as we, we navigate this conversation this year that you would give us humility and you would give us wisdom and that, Lord, you would strengthen this church and make it a place where the ministry of mercy just echoes and flows throughout this entire local community. Lord, I, I thank you, I praise you for the many men and women here who for decades, regardless of a title, regardless of an office, they have faithfully laid down their life to minister your love to so many by meeting physical and material needs. And, and in doing that, I've, I've had an opportunity for significant spiritual care and to share the gospel and lead people to Christ. But I thank you for their faithfulness and I pray that, that more than anything else, they would experience this year a strengthening of their hands and a new resolve through the gift of formal leadership in this area such that mercy ministry in Kingsway becomes one of these strengths that define us for decades to come. Lord, I thank you that you're a God who cares as much about our physical needs as our spiritual needs. That you don't create a hierarchy and, and, and call us to anticipate a future of floating with you in clouds. Lord, you're gonna create a new earth. And I thank you that until we get there, you've, you've given us leaders and you've given all of us a ministry to reflect your heart and your commitment to care for us as we are longing and groaning for the redemption of our bodies. I thank you for that hope. Would you help us this year as we, we dive into this topic in more detail? In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.